Good morning, all you diners and members of the culinary universe. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig. And uh, we have a number of very thoughtful interviews today, but they'll be fun as well. Um, starting with a, a group I didn't know anything about called the Hartman Group. And um, it's, we're talking to the CEO, Laurie Demerit, and she said it's just that's how it's pronounced, Demerit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> like mm-hmm. what the teacher gives you. Um, and uh, they do really interesting work with clients in the um, culinary field. And so they have a lot to talk about. And uh, let's listen to Laurie. Yes, Laurie Demerit. Um, I was just arrested by this. I, I never heard of the Hartman Group, which is the um, the consulting firm that you are the CEO of. Um, so I guess I'll ask you to start with that. But but we really are going to talk about some of your work and, and that report that caught my eye called um, The Organic and Beyond 2020, which is something. And it's always happening. Give us the timing as well. First of all, talk to us about your firm. How long has it been going? Who are you? What do you do? Certainly. Thank you for having me. The Hartman Group is a market research and consulting firm that works exclusively in the food and beverage space. We've been doing work in this space for over 30 years. Wow. Typical projects for us are usually around issues of health and wellness. So we do want to consider all things food, but our specialty is in understanding how consumers are integrating healthier products into their lives, uh, what's important about those products to them, and then making some predictions about the future. Well, that's right on target for what's hot now. I mean, everybody, this is main concern. I I saw it coming through the specialty food market probably eight years ago or nine. You know, mm-hmm. and now it's here. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Tell us some more. Certainly. So we have a team that's composed of a lot of folks who have backgrounds in the social sciences. So they're anthropologists and sociologists, and they're very good at both observing consumer behavior and talking to consumers to unearth and help consumers articulate what their needs are. And then we also do a lot of quantitative research as well. So we have this kind of robust set of data around what consumers are doing, but then a lot of the work we do is interpreting that and making recommendations for our clients. You have a lot of initials after your uh, your team's names, <laughs> like PhD <laughs> and you know, whatever. Uh, so, yes. yes. So um, I didn't realize it was ongoing for that long, but you really are at the dead center of probably the hottest topic in the food and beverage world. Yeah, you know, it's so, interesting. Laurie, who, the company – sorry, go ahead. Who, who's, who's a typical client? Is it like mm-hmm. Kraft or uh, like somebody exactly. who Exactly. It's the large food, food companies, mm-hmm. okay. large food companies uh, and some mid-sized companies, and then also retailers and food service providers. So they tend to be packaged goods manufacturers and then the retail channels that sell those products. Well, no, the, the study that, or the report that – caught my eye was something that was always kind of lingering in my head. What is next? You say the organic and beyond. I mean, we're in a huge swell of change, aren't we? Mm-hmm. We are. 
We are. And organic is still a really important signifier for consumers. Obviously, the market is doing quite well for organic, albeit not huge, but growing, certainly. But what we're finding is consumers, although they love organic, are starting to have even more sort of desires to have additional criteria be part of organic, whether it's animal welfare or soil health or social welfare. And so we called it organic, organic and beyond to really symbolize the fact that now many consumers are looking for additional attributes of their food and beverage products that organic doesn't quite cover to their satisfaction. So there's a lot on the horizon and, and certainly happy to, to talk about some of those issues we see out yeah, there. Yeah, now what is regenerative agriculture? I mean, that sounds mm-hmm. like a, a reach. Yeah, it doesn't slip off the tongue of most consumers, that's for sure. But the ideas that it's embedded upon are really resonating with consumers. And so it's some of those exact same areas I just talked about, like social welfare, animal welfare, and soil health. It's going in much more depth and detail in terms of what practices could be. And so the ideas behind regenerative agriculture are really starting to be of interest to consumers. But only one-third of American consumers say they know anything at all about that that word or that phrase, regenerative agriculture. But the ideas within it are important. Now, you did most of the research, you said, for for this study in January, February, and you released it at the end of March. Well, there's been a whole hell of a lot that's changed since we all got quarantined for the uh, coronavirus. Mm Yeah. Well, what we found, and this goes back to work that we did after the recession in 2008 as well, we found that premium products, of which we consider organic one, held up pretty well during the recession. And the reason for that was because to the folks who were using them, they really were symbolizing something very important to them in terms of personal health. And so we found that they would make some trade-offs. So, for example, maybe organic milk was really important to them. They would pay extra for organic milk, but they wouldn't necessarily buy, let's say, organic cold cereal because it didn't seem as important during that time and they wanted to be more frugal. And we're seeing indications of that during this recession as well. There's some great sales data out there, not ours, but sales data that the Organic Produce Network, for example, is putting out there, which is showing that organic produce sales are outpacing conventional produce sales right now in terms of the growth. So I think that because of the symbolic nature of organic and the meaningfulness it has to consumers in terms of health and wellness, we find that even when times are tough, there are certain product categories within organic that they're going to buy no matter what. Now, I'm curious about the fact that with this uh, coronavirus, there's been a huge shift in um, grocery shopping and purchasing, Mm -hmm. a lot of online stuff, a lot of uh, mistrust of all the large um, businesses that would be your clients, really, Um, and and support of local farmers and uh, expansion of CSAs and all that. How is that impacting what you've reported on your business? Well, I think what we're seeing is a lot of differing consumer behavior considering wherever their needs and you know values lie. We definitely have seen, I think a lot of the big food companies have seen an uptick in a lot of what we'd maybe consider more comfort food or less healthful food during that initial wave of everyone staying home. We sort of stocked up on all those goodies and comfort foods. But now as many communities are entering, you know, the eighth, ninth, tenth week, of having to be at home and having to cook and feed their family at every meal occasion, we're starting to see a bounce back to some of the more normal behaviors in terms of incorporating a lot more healthful foods into their diet. That said, we've also seen exactly what you said, which is that consumers who are more engaged in sort of health and wellness or more engaged in food 
are turning to more local purveyors to source theirs. So they're trying to be very intentional about buying locally to the extent they can or buying from online merchants that might have local products. So it really depends on the consumer. And I'd say both the small local companies and the big package good companies have both seen some increases uh, simply because we're spending more of our money at retail food sales, on retail food sales than we are at food service, obviously, during this time. Um, what if all, all these, with all the restaurants closed, um, the people, um, I mean, the, 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 the whole restaurant industry has really shifted. We've interviewed mm-hmm. so many people in the industry, um, and um, it, it's, it's a whole different market out there now. I mean, when are yeah. they going to bounce back? I don't know when they're going to bounce back, the restaurants. Yeah, it's, it's really sad. I mean, that is such, you know, has been such a vibrant space, food service in general, and just the, all the various iterations within it, whether it's fine dining to fast casual to delivery. And obviously, there's some really innovative things that people have come up with. You know, you see Panera Bread starting to do grocery delivery, uh, fine dining establishments uh, like Canlis. <laughs> oh, yeah, you listen to Canlis. Wasn't he wonderful, huh? Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, but, you know, that said, it's been a real struggle for them. So it'll be, I, I'm hopeful that they will be able to bounce back. And I'm, I am hopeful because I've seen them, so many of them be so innovative in terms of how they are still managing to sort of get by uh, and, and getting into other spaces, right? And so let's hope that they can bounce back. Um, but I, it's buoyed by the fact that there are some really interesting things. And I think ultimately, as Americans, we really enjoy food service. It's a chance for us to experiment maybe with foods that we've never tried before, whether it's global cuisine or more interesting foods. Um, obviously, it's such a pleasurable and enjoyable experience uh, in so many ways. So I think there's this very strong desire to get back to the way things used to be that hopefully will help that industry in the short term. Yeah, well, I, I don't know, Danny Meyer said, He's not reopening any of his restaurants until there's a vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a big chunk of restaurants. And I think you brought up something that that is, is resonating with consumers, and that is now much more understanding and, I think, empathy for folks who work in food service, um, you know, who have put themselves, in many cases, in harm's way simply to get food to us, and the same thing with grocery retail stores uh, and other folks in the food industry. So there's much more appreciation now for sort of the social element of this, which is the humans behind it and the workers. Um, and so I think that, you know, whether it's Danny Myers or others who really want to protect their staff, I think that's... Um, something that is uh, obvious now, coming more obvious to consumers in a way it wasn't in the past, and there's much more appreciation for those folks than there was in the past as well. One of the, one of the things, Laurie, that's been really frustrating for, for me is the, the inadequacy of the delivery side of the business. Mm-hmm. Like like if you, if you want a date from Whole Foods to get your groceries delivered, you might get one in 2021. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's definitely bringing to light some things for consumers, and and we heard this in a study. We actually did a study recently that was just kind of focused on COVID itself, and one of the things that became really clear was this idea that consumers were sort of shocked by, in their words, um, you know, how we didn't really bounce back <clears throat> as as easily or as quickly as we thought we would when this happened from a food supply chain, meaning you know all the out of stocks. 
um, the fact that you couldn't get food delivered, uh, that there seemed to be a lot of scarcity. There wasn't this sort of abundance that we as Americans are used to when it comes to food. And that's brought up some important issues around inequality and um, food supply chain and, and maybe the, the idea that we should be more local and be a little more resilient in terms of our food supply. So the raising ideas among consumers that for a lot of mainstream consumers they haven't thought about before. So I think it's interesting to bring that up because we are starting to hear those sort of question marks uh, about things that haven't necessarily crossed the minds of consumers in the past. Right. So what do you think, like, are people asking you different questions now? They're not all still focusing on organic, probably. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the questions are both what they always were, which is, what, you know, what is the trajectory of organic? Where is it going? Um, you know, is it going to regenerative agriculture or biodynamics or what is it? And then I think there's some new questions layered in that are just about, you know, how well will organic continue to do or not during this time period? And well, when will things seem sort of normal again? I, there is no doubt, our opinion at the Hartman Group, there's no doubt that the way consumers procure food will see lasting changes. Whether it's those people have tried online for the first time ever, uh, to people who are, you know, used to go shopping to two different places on one shopping trip, one place to get their packaged goods and one place to get their fresh goods, Will they still do that? So there's no doubt that that will change. However, what people eat, what they want to eat, how they eat, we feel that many of those things are just bedrock principles around how we as Americans live our lives and that they're likely to see a return to what we saw before in terms of their trajectory for the most part. How long do you think it's going to take? <laughs> yeah, well, that's anyone's guess, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's... I, yeah. We're already seeing the bounce back in terms of food habits. You know, as I mentioned before, that sort of all of us eating a bunch of comfort food and now are you starting to bounce back and say, okay, maybe I should go back to buying a little bit healthier, a little bit more fresh. So I think we're already <laughs> seeing some of those behaviors. But, you know, there's other interesting things going on within households. So we're finding among families, for example, busy families that used to maybe only eat dinner together exactly. once or twice a week, right, because everyone was going to soccer practice or, you know, whatever. We're finding a lot of those families now are eating together and having this common salad around the table for the first time in years, and they're yes. really appreciating it. You know, so I could see something like some of those family dinners sticking. On the other hand, the poor millennials who are all living alone are actually eating alone more often now than they ever did before because they're no longer able to go to food service or have friends over for dinner like many millennials who are single like to. So on the flip side of this, we're also seeing more alone meals on on some of the generations' part. So. You know, I think there's some, you know, some interesting things happening within households that we're trying to capture as well to understand what their lasting impact might be. Well, this would certainly affect most of your clients, all these changes, huh? Yeah, certainly. I mean, just, you know, whether it's a single-serve dinner to a multi-serve dinner to how much cooking or prep work do people want to do, right? I think we've become a nation where we, we sometimes cook from scratch, but it's not that often. We do a lot of sort of meal construction using various meal components, and more people now are exploring cooking. Some are loving it, some aren't, but that was an question for our clients in terms of, you know, how much scratch cooking and baking will people do? There's so many people trying to make bread for the first time ever. You know, will that continue to be? Everybody's making sourdough bread, (laughs) right? Everybody's, and photographing it. (laughs) Yes, yes, and it all looks lovely. (laughs) what's, What's happening around this house is we we are we are realizing that the smart thing for us to do is to be prepared to to pay more significantly more in some cases but to make to make sure we get a, a delivery of what we need tomorrow mm-hmm. so for yep. example chef's chef's garden which is near toledo 
Yeah, which now does retail. It never did retail. That's another whole major shift. They never did retail. They all they sold to the top top restaurants in the country. But mm-hmm. the, the thing about it for us is, first of all, the quality is very good. But the most important thing is, they pick it today, we get it tomorrow without fail. Yep. Yep. And 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 the, those merchants who let us down, who failed us, will will remember. We'll remember them. (laughs) Well, you're echoing something we've heard, which is that, yes, there's a lot of consumers now who are really being thoughtful about who's who's sort of helping them during this and who's failing them, in in their words. Um, And it's pretty clear that, you know, there there are some division lines that are being drawn uh, and consumers are being thoughtful about that. And I think we will see some lasting loyalties change um, over time due, due to what's happening right now. So, you know, it's, it's a difficult situation everyone's in, whether they're a you know, retailer, a manufacturer, a consumer, or whatnot. But I think consumers are being thoughtful about those folks that feel like they're benefiting the community and doing whatever they can, even if it's not what they used to do, but doing the best they can during this time. And those that don't seem to have, you know, the consumer's best interests in mind. And, and certainly there will be some lasting impacts from that. Yeah, my, my well, yeah, your, your work is very interesting. It's, I mean, even we haven't even got into some of it because um, – not many people talk as much as you do on your website about the presentation packaging and and every little uh, every little communication about a product but um i mean that's something I think that if you start ordering a lot online, you see the the companies shine that have done that once mm-hmm. they're just jumping in aren't really catching up very quickly yeah do you do yeah, beverage think- as well? Laurie? We do. Yeah, we do Lots beverage. Yes, food and beverage. And and certainly that's a really exciting marketplace. We're, we're actually right now, we're in the field with a study that's looking at functional foods and beverages. And the yeah, beverage side about of things, that. yeah, it's so interesting because the beverage side of things, I think that's where there's even more excitement than there is on the food side, meaning beverages as a carrier for some functional benefits, whether those benefits are around uh, cognitive health or energy or obviously immunity is very top of mind for consumers right now. And so I think that space, the beverage space, we've seen so much interesting innovation, right? I mean, none of us would have known what kombucha was a few years ago um, or kefir, right? I have it's to tell you, you can keep it. I, I think it's been hyped so much. <laughs> so, But um, some of these beverages, the functional beverages, I mean, I'm afraid to even sip them because they have all these claims, you know, of what they're going to do for you, and and, and I, I worry about what's really in them because you don't you don't even understand what these what the ingredients are. Well, there's certainly a lot of interesting stuff out there, right? We've got uh, manufacturers who are using botanicals and adaptogens and, yes. and a lot of things that have a rich historical association with health, whether they're coming out of Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine. So there are some really interesting products out there. And for a lot of consumers, beverages are much less, in their words, kind of risky way to try something. Like if you get a food, it might taste weird if it has all that stuff in it. But beverages seem to be something they're willing to try. It's single serve, right? You don't have to serve it to your whole family. You can try it on your own. So that beverage space is a really rich one right now for a lot of innovation when it comes to functional health benefits. And I think obviously with immunity being so top of mind, um, there's ingredients like elderberry and hibiscus and oil of oregano yeah, I, I, and all these Elderberry, I'd like to know healing. what that is. With elderberries, it's almost in everything anymore. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because it was a 
Well, and it's a, it's a flavor that consumers are very interested in, and now it has implications for immune health. And so it's, it's obviously having a pretty important moment right now, um, given that people are looking for immunity support. Right. Well, I think that, that even your website is fascinating, and uh, you certainly are. Um, why don't you give our listeners this website so they can check it out? Sure. It's um, Hartman, H-A-R-T-M-A-N dash, just like a hyphen, group.com. And we release a lot of research on our website. So if you go to our newsletter section, you can see research findings from the past several years about all sorts of topics. We're big believers in putting a lot of information out there in the hopes people want to come back for more. So uh, I encourage everyone to look at it, and I obviously would love to hear from folks if they're interested. My email address is Lori, L-A-U-R-I-E, at hartman-group.com, and uh, I will answer each and every email I get with any questions. Oh, you're wonderful, Lori. Thank you for taking the time to, to talk to us about this. I'm fascinated with what you're doing. <laughs> Oh, thank you. It was very enjoyable. And we can never get sick talking about food, right? Talking about food is the best. We're really right, lucky to so. be in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, thank you again. Thank you. Take care. Laurie sure is one smart lady, huh? Yeah, <laughs> she and, sure is. And, and let's put in one for the guys. Right after the break, we got a smart guy coming in. We do. So, David. So hang in there. Don't go away because we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. I'm David Jokum. He's written so many books and he's been around for so so many issues that uh, I'm not surprised that he keeps resurfacing on on the menu. And his latest gig is this is something on you want to jot down this new newsletter and website called digestthis dot news. I mean everything in the uh, the uh, food culinary drink everything changes so quickly that it takes. Something like this, so that you want to stay up to date on what's happening uh, around you. Um, he has a staff, and he personally reviews everything written about everything having to do with restaurants and food and issues of that sort. And then he puts it into this digest so that you get this newsletter in your inbox or go to the website, and you get to, to be up to date wherever it counts. So let's listen to uh, David Jalkin. Well, we're talking to David Jalkin. <laughs> we're laughing at this because we've interviewed David probably oh, half a dozen times. And I always look at his name. And the, big, the big revelation just came up. The big revelation that, that uh, the Virgin Mary's last name was Wackham. Jalkin. And talk them. But uh, anyhow, um, David has an exciting new adventure. David's always been very busy, and you do 10 million things simultaneously. I don't know, never have known how you do all this. But you have another new venture called DigestThis.News. Tell us what this is, David. This is a weekly news bulletin in the form of a free 
email newsletter, and it's also a website, digestthis.news. And it is essentially a digest of all of the essential food news that's out there. And it is uh, casting a very wide net. I am casting a very wide net um, on everything from the food supply chain to chefs and restaurants and health and nutrition and food safety and regulations and and everyday cooking for home cooks and beverages and also some uh, new books, reviews of new books. So it's very broad, and this came out because I read the food news all the time. And yeah, well, right I mean, now, it's, you know, I read this. You're covering what we cover, except I have never had one place to get all this information. So I had to read all these different things, yeah. But this is kind of what we're covering in our podcast, that a wide range, because, you know, where do you draw the line? It's all overlapping in this industry anyhow. It is, yeah. And, you know, you've been doing this a long time, so you know that food intersects so many different facets of our lives. And it's difficult to, to really show people just how central food is to everything from the economy to, to art. So, so this, this does attempt to do that, but we really saw a need for it now because so much is happening in the food world. So much has been ended with the coronavirus. Um, and people are looking for information on uh, just going out to eat or buying groceries. So digestist.news provides a lot of the, the essential key top-line news that people really should be aware of. Um, for instance, you, you know David, that there's how are you going to do this? I mean, it's going to take you forever. You, you already do. You've, you've edited, authored, collaborated on more than 50 cookbooks. Um, you have had ICP reference books like the Food Substitutions Bible, the Science of Good. What goes on and on and on? You host um, uh, radio, television. You're going to spend how much time are you just reading everything that's published on food? Busy guy, you're right. And I do have another <laughs> book coming out this fall. Um, and so cookbooks have always been uh, just my first love, and I continue to do them. And uh, the new one that's coming out is called Mastering Bread, oddly enough, now that people are all home baking sourdough bread. Um, oh, yeah, funny. Uh, but uh, how, how am I going to find the time? That's a good question. I, I Like I said, I do read the food news pretty regularly, and I subscribe to many different food newsletters, and even though I subscribe to those, and some of those are are compiling uh, various food news. Yeah, I mean, like, how do you relate together. to uh, to com? I mean, they they cover Eater, just about everything. They do, and Eater is um, much more regional. They'll have news on particular restaurant openings in Chicago, for instance, and that is not the kind of thing that you would find at DigestThis.News. The digestist.news is really top-level food news that affects um, a, a, a more people around the country and even around the world. So if a restaurant opens in Philadelphia or Los Angeles, someone in Sarasota, Florida may not really care about it, depending on what kind of restaurant it is. So that's how I draw the line is, is it's, if it's something that I think that everybody in the country – and possibly outside the country will be interested in or if okay. this may affect them in some way, then I will include it. And there's there's fun things in there too. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about the murder hornet. Um, yeah, oh, please. I, I know that. I thought that was the last straw. All I needed was to have murder horns. 
we, we've had two episodes with, in previous years with hornets. They you know, their their nests go up really quickly, you know, right. and they're like made well, from paper. And and yeah. I just can't I can't imagine having the murder ones around. I mean, it bad enough to get rid of the ones I had. Our exterminator put on a spaceship suit. I mean, you know, one of those. <laughs> And came, well, and, and we weren't allowed to go outside until the, the hornets got tired and, and, and stopped being angry at us. Well, interestingly enough, these hornets are enjoyed as a delicacy in Japan, I know. which I thought was an interesting story. So that was one that I thought would be good to include because that's the kind of thing that even many food professionals may not be aware of. So in terms of they barbecue them. They, they kind yep. of grill them. They make a little Y V shaped thing, Y shaped thing, and stick them right. in there like in a little row. I, I can picture it right now. Yeah, they're they also soaked in spirits. Um, apparently, the hornets release uh, an amber-colored venom that um, turns spirits dark as if they were aged in a charred oak barrel. Uh, so they are added <laughs> to spirits. Um, so yeah, so that. That's kind of an interesting little story. So I, I will include things like that occasionally. Uh, but the categories are very broad. Um, the categories of news include, uh, as I said, chefs and restaurants and the food supply chain, which is big now, food processing, what's going on with uh, meatpacking uh, facilities right now. So it's very broad. Um, and like all newsletters, it does reflect my my take on things. So uh, obviously you can't include everything because there's just so much. But see, you but, and I have some of the same interests because I, I immediately felt for the, the story on the murder hornets. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm now concerned with the, with jackrabbits. Have you been reading about that? <laughs> I have. There's, there's, <laughs> there's a new disease killing off um, jack rabbits and wild rabbits in the southwest of the U.S. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah, there's so much. And this is the thing. It's hard to stay on top of it all. Um, and if you're a food professional in, in whatever capacity, maybe you're a food scientist or a chef or a food journalist or someone who works in food policy, um, you just want to stay up on what's happening in the food world. So digestthis.news helps you do that. And it's, it, it is selective you know it, it's curated i don't like that word curated but yeah, you know, obviously no, i, I like can't it include <laughs> i can't i like it almost it, as much as i like pivot <laughs> right right it's also digested too right yeah that's the joke there that it's digest this is, i've been waiting to get that a, one in there <laughs> Okay. My, tastes are, my tastes are pretty broad since I've been I've been a food writer and journalist since 1992. So it's yeah. quite a long time. And uh, both magazines and books, and as you mentioned, I've been on television and lots of radio. And um, I still have a, a column in Fine Cooking Magazine on food science. And I have published pretty widely on food science and also on grilling. Uh, so those are the that's the other thing I love is the food science. I love science things, you know, weird, weird little stories. I love those. Now, do you, I guess you get the word out, and then people send you um, uh, press releases and notices and things, right? 
Yes. So I subscribe to a number of different newsletters, uh, publications as diverse as Atlas Obscura. I don't know if you know that. I, I, I get that too. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, the the Institute of Food Technologists newsletter. No, I don't do that um, one. <laughs> so all, all sorts of um, interesting food and health publications. Um, and, of course, I read things like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. Um, so what this does, particularly if you aren't subscribing to a news outlet that requires a subscription, this does provide some of the key highlights from a news story in, say, the Wall Street Journal. So but you're not going to run into the thing that makes me upset is if I get on one of these overview kinds of newsletters and I click on the highlighted link and then they tell me there's a paywall, then I get really annoyed. Yes, unfortunately, this is how news outlets make a living. So there's not much we can do about that. And I do believe in supporting the work that they're doing. So I understand why the paywall is there. And if you find that their news service that valuable, I think you actually should be chipping in for it. So while we are essentially directing traffic to their websites by linking mm-hmm. to uh, the New York Times or Ch- Chicago Tribune or whatever, um, we are – uh, sharing some of their information. So hopefully they will see a benefit from this because we do link directly to their sites. Uh, but the service that we provide is completely free. Right. Okay. Um, I still don't know where you're going to find time. There's so much information out there. I, I, <laughs> well, I, I, truly I, spend, I spend several hours every day just reading the news now and looking for interesting mm-hmm. stories and what's what's fascinating to me actually is the the stories that are in several different publications you really get to see the different takes that uh, the Wall Street Journal versus the Washington Post would have on mm-hmm. a story like um, the USDA committing 300 million dollars a month to help the food supply issues that we're having, the the supply chain issues and redistributing food that is no longer in demand from restaurants but is still being produced uh, by farmers and and is in demand by consumers but is not available on grocery store shelves or in food banks. So the USDA has committed money to that. Um, But that is a big story, and publications cover it. Yeah, pigs. I mean, look at what they're doing to pigs, you know. Right. right, right. Yeah, yeah. That's there's all kinds. It's such a shame. There's milk. So they're pouring so out milk, and then... right. And terms like depopulation are coming into the vernacular now. <laughs> but yes, yeah. I mean, what do you do if you have uh, if you have uh, a month's worth of pigs that cannot be sent to a meat processing facility? Um, and they can't be sold, and there's not much else you can do. Same with eggs or milk. Or even onions have been plowed back into the ground, potatoes. Uh, so, yeah, so it, fortunately the USDA has committed a significant amount of money to helping redistribute that food so it doesn't go to waste. Yeah, we have a, a big food distributor uh, in town um, called Paragon Foods. I don't know if you've ever heard of them or not, but um, – they were left with this huge, when all the restaurants closed, there was this huge warehouse full of stuff, inventory. And so um, they they turned to giving it away. They had one announcement on Facebook, and 
200 people showed up with bags and boxes to cart stuff away. And then they had to do it a second time. So there's there's that disconnect. I mean, there are people hungry and want this food, and it's just how you get it is the question. If you, right. if you want a, if you want right. a storyline, David, go to 412 Food Rescue. Oh, they're good. That's the local organization. It's a local. It's a local. Yeah, this, this organization. woman is dynamite. She uh, who founded it. She's um, from the Philippines, uh, Leia Lazarando. I mean, but she's, she just got, oh, she gets all these awards, but she, she was the one that, um, one of the ones called to testify on, um, on climate change before the UN committee studying it, and she just did another one of those, I mean, big time stuff, national, international, and what she mm. did was just put together um, basic technology uh, with the the food insecurity issue and came up with this program plus several thousand volunteers and um, and I guess they just give the technology to whoever wants it and so it'll be it'll be big I mean it'll be probably international at some point. But the big, There's a similar thing organization called FarmLink well, in California. Uh, that was started uh, for the same purpose, to get food from farms to food banks or to redirect it from mm-hmm. restaurant accounts that would have been buying this food uh, yeah. and redirect it to grocery stores or, or to whoever needs it. So we just interviewed Mark Canlis, and, and uh, what they started doing was um, their farmers, the small family farmers, were falling by the wayside, so... Uh, Canlis, in addition to converting the the whole restaurant and the whole whole new business plan and everything, but anyhow, um, they collect and distribute the, the CSA um, boxes for, mm. for the farmers. So they they do that and, and they keep their people employed. They have a hundred and thirty some employees, and so that's how they yeah, keep them busy. And uh, and they do it for nothing. They don't take even a percentage of it. It's and very important work. It's and uh, I'm sure you've read about um, 11 Madison Park in New York City uh, will probably, even if it reopens as a fine dining restaurant, will most likely include some kind of hunger relief component as part of its regular yeah. business. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, I've read his, uh, Daniel's, um, thing about driving around seeing I don't know how I could have missed it for all these years the food insecurity in New York but but you know uh, he also has a good example he has a good example in what Massimo Batura has been doing for years now with these uh, refractorias you know about that right I mean, there's, he calls them refratorias, but, but essentially they're soup kitchens he's setting up all over the world. It's like, oh, it's, like yes, a fine, yes. it's like a fine dining soup kitchen. Yes. But the, the, but the, the, the foundation of it was from the, uh, what, was, what was, the, was, the, was, the, was the big food show in Europe, right? Oh, uh, that's when he started you know, feeding the, um, uh, what is the, the Expo Milano. Um, and he, he had a whole army of, sh- of chefs 
who, who showed up and would take whatever ingredients were left over from things that had been cooked the day before and the day before that and, and selling them as fine dining stuff to, to people who were at the, the expo. It's important work, very important work. Yeah. Yeah, well, it seems to be the direction of the time. So, um, I, yes, yeah, I, I don't know what... It's very unsure right now, and that's that's a big category of news that I'm reporting on is what's happening in the restaurant world is right yeah, now. We've been doing that too. They're reopening. We've been uh, we've been interviewing people. As I said, we just interviewed Mark Handless. Um, the um, I just heard I got the interview um, with um, uh, Recipe on a. The, the burgers that they're giving at Noma. Outside. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yep. Burgers. And, um, yeah, and, I mean, there, there, there's... Uh, so what's your sense? People uh, in New Orleans. Hmm? You're doing... I, I'm, I'm doing some interviews, but mostly I am sharing news that I'm reading. So you, right. having done these interviews, what do you think the general mood is among restaurateurs about the... The feasibility of of reopening, um, even I think in some a lot of them, I think ourselves. Yeah, I mean, a lot of them, I think, um, will not reopen. I mean, you know, even David Chang's not going to reopen all of his, you know. Right. But I think that more significant than that is that this has given the chefs time to reevaluate what they're doing and what their goals are. Exactly. You know, and you see, we just interviewed um, uh, Will Drew from Fifty Best Restaurants, and and mm-hmm. they're they're not doing a listicle this year. They're doing um, they're raising money for uh, the assist restaurants and so forth, and they're sponsoring um, seminars on you know directions. I mean, the whole world is changing, and it's not going to be the same when restaurants. The ones that do reopen, it won't be the same. Right. I don't think. Yeah, Gabriel. So I think, and I think that the, the thing that's amazing is how creative these long-term fine dining establishments have become, turning on a dime, uh, mm-hmm. their whole entire business plan. You know, their whole model. Well, everything you need totally to survive. Different. Yeah, but I mean, but they, they're careful. I mean, the ones I've talked to. Are really enjoying it. That's good. That's good. Yeah, some, I, mean, I think don't want to do takeout and contactless transactions. They're in it. I know some of those. They, yeah, they. they no, really I know some of those people. too. And um, but I would say that I've talked to more who are enjoying. But then again, that could be weighted. I could be probably requesting interviews more with the people who are more positive. The negative about it. I mean, a, a really good uh, chef restaurateur friend of mine. Uh, he's not doing takeout. He's not changing. He, in fact, is going to come back um, upping the, his game and making it more destination restaurant. I don't know why. Oh wow! I think it's. I think it's suicide. But you know, <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it does. It doesn't hurt that his his financier made a fortune in bitcoins. Yeah, that's true. Mm. So, it will take so a while so for yes, Destination yes. Dining to, to rebound. But, you know, I mean, don't just, you think that part of it is you, 
these uh, chefs and restaurateurs. Um, because before this, I mean, I saw a lot of this coming in the last couple of years. The stress on these restaurants has been so extreme. They were all, there were always these um, emotional, mental issues coming up. And, you know, I mean, two, two interviews that with chefs that we had scheduled had to be canceled because the chefs killed themselves. It was oh very inconsiderate of them. <laughs> awful. That's awful. But it's true. There is a lot of stress and there's a lot of a lot that's been flying under the radar in the restaurant industry and they've they've been in trouble for a while, I think. Independent restaurants anyway. They yeah. Razor thin margins, um stress, um just the the cry the the need for health insurance and the cost of it. These are often small family run businesses and it's very difficult to turn a profit or even break even. Yes. So I think these things just have been exacerbated over the past few years, and the the pandemic has just uh, made many. Have you of them talked to Kat Kinsman at all? I haven't spoken she, with her. No. She started Chefs with Issues. Right. I mean, she wrote a whole book on anxiety, which is her issue. You know, but um, she she they run a, a suicide hotline or connections to one of those, all kinds of stuff. But she knows about the, the issues, the mental health issues that come. And I think that some of these chefs are taking a deep breath and thinking, you know, I could probably make the, the best damn burger in the world and I wouldn't have to, to work 17 hours a day and be right. criticized all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking it's just a whole different mindset. What do you think? It is. It, no, I agree, uh, because I think many chefs are in it for the creative outlet. They love serving people. They love making food, and that has been cast in a new light now. And if serving people who are hungry or in need actually brings greater satisfaction, they might be drawn to doing that long-term rather than feeding well-heeled people. Um, so, yeah, who knows with how stick out. And some of the other delivery services are charging yeah. up to 30%. So that's, yeah, a, 30. that's the big that issue for, Grubhub for restaurants. Grubhub was horrible. Yeah, did you see that? Grubhub, they were taking 30%. I did. Yep. So it makes sense, you know, because restaurateurs, they're often not set up for online ordering. They may have their menu online, but you can't actually place an order online. So that is what the third-party services offer, in addition to the delivery itself. Um, But Talk is is taking a different approach to that. Uh, And fortunately, you know, as he's the co-owner of Alenia, and I think he understands that restaurants – operate on razor-thin margins and that they really can't afford 30% in fees and delivery costs and whatever other uh, charges are are on the bill for Grubhub and DoorDash. Right. So thankfully, he's, you know, he understands the restaurant business, I think, a bit more than some of the other delivery services do. Right. Well, listen, David, as usual, it's great talking to you, and um, we should touch base when we hear of interesting things. Send me any news you like. I will do the same. And that's Uh, it. We can exchange news. It's a very exciting new project for me. And like I said, I've been reading so much food news for many years, and I wanted to share it. So this this weekly newsletter is sent once uh, once a week on Tuesdays, uh, but the website is available always 
at Digest. Okay, well, I signed up for the newsletter already, so. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you. Yeah. So um, how are you going to monetize it? Well, right now, um, AmazingRibs.com is the sponsor of it, and we are I think he's a hoot. I love him, by the way. Yeah, he's great. Me <laughs> Yep. Uh, so we're looking for other sponsors, and uh, we'll see. I mean, um, if we if we are able to get another sponsor, um, we should be able to continue this far into the future. Uh-huh. Well, that's good. Um, yeah, you have to be real careful because these people start breathing down your your you know the necks of the people you cover which is i mean breathing down my neck is not so bad but i don't want them breathing down the necks of people i'm interviewing so well we have a lot to talk about we'll keep talking and and you have a a great launch of this and um calm down a little (laughs) (laughs) talk to cat kinsman about your mental health (laughs) i think i'm doing okay (laughs) Good talking to you, you, David. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, we were very happy to, to find... Dan Honig and uh, his um, his business, which is called Happy Valley Meat. Uh, it's it's a great service to people who need to have um, good quality local meat delivered, um, especially beef. I guess is his focus, and and also it's good for the farmers that that he helps support. It's um, and it's good quality. It's, like it's a good deal all around. It's a good deal all around. Let's listen to Dan. Yeah, Dan Honig, um, Happy Valley Meat. Is that named after Penn State, Happy Valley? That's, exact, that's exactly right. We started, yeah. um, funny enough, we, we actually, the way we started our business is we knew it was so important to find a processing plant, a small processing plant that would work with us and be flexible. And the only one that would work with us was in State College. And so all of the initial farms that we started working with were all around the State College area. And we were walking into our first meeting with restaurants, realizing we didn't have a name for our company. So really quick, they were just like, what, what do you guys call it? I'm like, well, we're, we're out of Happy Valley, so... <laughs> Happy Valley Meat Company, <laughs> and that's how it became, and now we're stuck with it. So. Well, how about giving us a, a, a brief elevator spiel on what exactly Happy Valley Meat is as a business? Yeah, I'd love to. So um, in its most simple form, what we sort of realized was it's really tough to be a farmer, and it's really tough to be a farm animal in today's current system. And Happy Valley exists for the sole purpose to make the lives of the people and animals that feed us better. We do that until COVID-19. We've done that predominantly by selling meat, buying whole animals directly from small farms, working with small independent processors to break them down into industry standard cuts, and then selling just the cuts that the restaurant wants to a restaurant. Um, Since COVID-19, a lot has changed for us, but the thing that hasn't is our mission. And so, you know, thinking very simply about what Happy Valley is, is we're 
we're building a better meat system to mimic what the big commodity scale guys do in their efficiency, but putting in what they lack, which is following the story all the way through from the farm to the table where somebody eats it so somebody is fully aware of all the values they support. Well, you're doing a service both to the consumer and to the farmers, and it's not easy. I mean, anybody who's tried to organize farmers understands it's not an easy process. Yeah, and, and if you'll allow me to talk for a little bit about one of the biggest hurdles, which is right, if you think about what my business does, which is you take whole animals and you break them down, there are really only four companies that have learned how to do this with beef really well in the world. There, 80% of the beef supply in the U.S. is controlled by four companies, which is such a crazy number to me, to have 80% of the beef supply be controlled by just four companies. And that's because of this really challenging thing of no matter what people are cooking, the animal is going to stay the same, right? So whether people are grilling more or braising more, the animal, the body itself is not going to change dependent upon the demand from the consumer. So a lot of what those big companies have done and what we're learning to do and doing is what we call balancing. It's making sure that every piece of meat has a home and that you can continue moving forward so you don't end up with crazy, crazy backlogs. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, yeah. Who they, 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 was it in Slow Food Pittsburgh? Has what do they call it? A laptop butcher. I mean, do you know about that? No. What's a laptop butcher? Well, it's it's slow food. It's a chapter of slow food and whatever they call it. They don't call it chapters. And um, so they they work with all these farmers and um, and they list the, the farmers and you can go on and they're all carefully raised animals. I mean, this is they're not all organically certified, but you know what I mean, is they're carefully raised. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, to me, probably better than uh, a certification, which can be hacked in another way. They, then they, they, they found their way to market via, essentially via a farmer's market. No, no, oh. they, they actually, you, you, you actually put your orders through on a computer. Right. Program. I mean, it's all order in advance, and I mean, and there are guidelines that, that tell you that you know you can't all be getting steaks and this and that and the other thing. Um, and and there are different kinds of arrangements. Some people can go together and order, um, you know, like parts of a pig. You know what I mean? Like I got yeah. one. No, I can't remember what I got, but. Um, so anyhow, so that's what they're doing. It's all uh, computer organized, and then there's a pickup spot. So you order. They tell you when it's ready. And you go pick up your order, and that's it. And that's how it goes. And there's a list of participating farms. Yeah, and they, that sounds and they, like an incredible and they, and they they issue a shopping list every week, right, sweetheart? No, so, it's not that often. So this is what we've got. Yeah, but it's not as it's it's not as frequently as every week. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, no, but it grew. Peter's right; it grew out of a farmer's market, but uh, it was just more efficient to do it by ordering from somebody whose product you know, but in advance, so it helps the farmer, and you get what you want, and uh, they encourage yeah, you to I- get off cuts. No, I think a, half the custom. battle is that that planning 
and knowing right what you you know when you give your cut sheet to the to the butcher of what you need to produce out of an animal half the battle is knowing what you're going to sell versus what you're not so any service that's making it easier for farmers to know ahead of time is a huge boon right now you you gave us a lot of um, beef products to try some of them were um, like meatballs were ready to cook um, but most of them were just basic meats, beef, that you could um, cook, right? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, when you think about our business, what we do is by us taking on that burden of buying the whole animal from the farm, we allow farmers to be able to do what they do best, which is to farm. And, we, t- we you know, we take on all that marketing. And, and one of the, the major things that we do is we find homes for every piece of meat. And the biggest challenge for anybody selling selling whole animals, particularly beef, is that you produce 40% of an animal is going to be ground beef. But you can imagine the demand for high-end steak is just that much more. Oh, yeah. And so, is, you know, like everybody wants lamb chops. <laughs> exactly. And, and so one of the real numbers that we use, which is, I think, very interesting, is hanger steak, a cut that's become more familiar as of late. You get one pound of hanger steak, per animal. That's all you get. And in you know, on the other side you get two hundred and fifty pounds of ground beef. So you can imagine a restaurant that goes and sells five thousand or a thousand pounds of hanger steak a week, that's a thousand animals. Versus if you sell a thousand pounds of ground beef a week, that's only four animals. And so we use this as our scale to say, how can we work with smaller scale agricultural systems? It's not by making them produce a thousand animals for just the hanger steaks but it's by utilizing more of the bigger cuts that come off of the animal. And so in our, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. Um, and so, so you, know, what you, you know, what you got to experience was a little bit of, we, we like to say we build, build and mix and match to sort of help balance the animal. So one thing we do on our website is we call, we call it family meal, which, you know, being as in the restaurant industry as you are, I'm sure you guys are aware of, the family meal concept, but for listeners who might not know, uh, in restaurants, most oftentimes um, the restaurants will feed their workers, and it's part of the package of working with them, and this is called family meal or staff meal, but we like the idea of family meal. And for our business with our restaurants, we're often, to help us balance carcasses, we offer a product for a low price that we can sort of fill in whatever we need to, which is called family meal. And so when we put up our direct-to-consumer website in response to the restaurant closures, of the the COVID-19 epidemic, we put in this family meal box. So we get to like mix and match. And so we send some steaks, we send some roasts, and then, you know, always we're trying to find homes for how do we move ground beef because so much of it. So we started doing more of these, these further value added products like fully cooked meatballs and sausages. And uh, we do a beef and mushroom mix slider because you know, Pennsylvania is the mushroom capital of the U S so we get to make more Pennsylvania products. (laughs) Now, how, how do the so, animals get to you? I mean, yeah, there, there, so the farmers... There's quite a logistical issue here. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's our, our strong suit is the logistical bus. So we the way we, we find our farmers even is, for us, you know, like I said, our mission is to make the lives of the people and animals that feed us better. And so what we'll do is we'll find a processing plant that will work with us. We currently work with three, two in Pennsylvania, one on the Pennsylvania-New York border. And the, 
the slaughterhouse is the gateway to the agricultural community. Everybody who raises an animal that is going to meet our standards has to get it processed. It has to go from a living animal to an animal that's cut up and plate ready. And so what we do is we, we reach out to, to processing plants and we say, who in your neighborhood, like, introduce us to your farms, like, once we get the, we establish a good relationship with that plant. And so the farmer, they, they are the ones, once we, we have, uh, we developed some rearing guidelines with the ASPCA for when we say what does it mean when we say happy animal. We actually have like a 35-page document that says a happy animal must meet these standards. And so when we find farms that are doing that, what we do is we tell them they once they deliver to the, to the slaughterhouse, then, it, then their responsibility is done. They just have to go back and continue farming because that really is what they do best. And, you know, there are some farmers who are really great marketers, but most farmers don't want to market. They don't want to have to mix and match and sell um, other than maybe the odd farmer's market every once in a while, but they'd rather go and farm and allow, allow the marketing to happen in our space. So from there, we have standing slaughterhouses, standing slaughter spots, excuse me, at uh, slaughterhouses that the slaughterhouse now knows week in and week out that they can expect our business. Just like the farmers, we can plan out with them about a year ahead of time and say, you know, you're going to get this business and this is the price that you're going to be able to get. And so they're able to plan and grow their businesses. Um, we then give our cut sheets to the slaughterhouses, which will break the animals down according to our specifications. And then we put them onto um, a truck and bring them to a warehouse and deliver via FedEx. And we use Lancaster Farm Fresh, which has actually been a great partner. For I don't know if you're familiar with that company. Farm Fresh? What is it? Lancaster Farm Fresh is an organic distributor. Um, it's an Amish co-op based out of Lancaster. Oh, okay. And oh, so okay. They have All right. Yeah, I have to imagine they might be in Pittsburgh, but um, they're really cool company. You haven't. Yeah. Now, how long has this business been? I mean, your background thrown into the midst of this is pretty funny too, since you were vegan, um, you know, and, and um, <laughs> yeah, and 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 you were in seafood and, and I don't know what all. But um, how did you end up with beef? It's exclusively yeah. beef, right? Yeah, and and so I started exactly. I started. I didn't. I came from a family where we did not talk about food at all. Um, it's changed a lot now. My mom gardens, and and we talk about food a lot in my family. But growing up, all we knew is that bacon was yummy, and that was about as far as we got on food. Oh, really? <laughs> Funny. <laughs> I studied philosophy and the environment in college. And okay. I took a course on animals, ethics, and the environment, which opened my eyes to there's so much that goes into feeding people before it gets to a plate, particularly animals. The fact that we have to go and, and kill an animal and then process it and then eat it. And after that course, I, I actually became a strict vegetarian. I did not eat meat at all. And for the first, I'd say, five years of me being in the meat industry, I did not eat meat. I, I do eat meat now. Um, do you know there are a number? We've interviewed people who who have been vegans for a long period of time, who end up being butchers. There are a couple of women that have written books about it, and we've interviewed them, and it's interesting. I mean, because it goes one way or the other. I mean, I know a long-term, um, a long-time vegetarian friend of mine uh, became a vegan from living across from an abattoir in London. So it goes one way or another, but I mean, there, there, there is. I know there is this niche in there for people who really are concerned about 
how all this goes about in the um, animal world in terms of um, being able to ethically consume meat. And yeah, it's about yeah, philosophy, you're, you're, so you're not so far from your original interests, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think you're exactly right. I think it just goes to show that there's a number of people concerned with the way the commodity meat system is. And so a lot of us have... It's awful, like, absolutely awful. Absolutely, for you know, for not just the animals, but the human workers, like basically across yeah, the board. Yeah, look at where all the, these COVID people um, breakouts are in the meatpacking industry. Yeah, and that's because in, I think in like the 80s there was a strike with, um, I think it was IBP, and they basically said, um, we respect and value our workers very much. However, we can train anybody to break a beef within a couple of days, so okay. you're all basically replaceable. And and that that kind of ideology hasn't really changed. And they they do prey on marginalized workers. And it's you know one of the I think the craziest things about the COVID nineteen epidemic that's been showing is hey these people who are considered non essential workers throughout the whole rest of time where, like, they're marginalized, they're not paid very well, and all of a sudden now, like, they're essential workers and Trump is to work. saying they have to work, they have to work. They're essential, they have to work. Right. But yeah. the, 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 these, the, the, guys, the guys who are actually doing the breaking down of the they're not your employees. They're the employees of the, of the abattoir. So for us, yeah, we don't work with any of the big slaughter plants. We only work with little slaughter plants. Um, and we don't we don't own any infrastructure, but yeah, they're they're employees of the small slaughter plants that we work got with. It, got it. Um, but one of the the things that you know we we did speak to a number of, you know, we wrote an article um, for ourselves for our internal blog about what's what's going on in the meat industry, like why is it affecting workers so much? And you know, one of the things that really came out of it is, in a small slaughterhouse, you have somebody who's responsible for so much more information, right? So they're not assembly line removing animal parts they are actually somebody is more they rely more on their people than they do their machines and so the worker has a much bigger voice with the small slaughter plant uh-huh. because they pay just play such a more crucial role you can't easily train a small slaughterhouse person so um yeah and and to go back to sort of that me being a vegetarian and coming into this meat system was exactly that as i saw how how upsetting it was, the commodity meat system. I didn't want to partake in it, and I wanted to, to create an alternative. And I spent a lot of time visiting farms and slaughterhouses and really learning what those systems look like and got to beef because I recognized there's a really big disconnect between how a small farmer could even talk to a restaurant because mm-hmm. most restaurants don't want to buy whole beef. They want to buy just six animals worth of ribeyes or six animals worth of New York strips. Yeah, right. Now, did you, um, the, did you happen to come across um, Jamison's Organic Lamb Farm and their, the new book they wrote about their experience? I haven't read the book. I did listen a little bit on, because uh, I think you, you guys have had them on the show. Oh, we've been yeah. friends. Yeah. They, yeah, we've followed them for years. Yeah, but, I mean, their first big sales came um, through actually hand-carrying um, lambs into Jean-Louis Paladin's restaurant in D.C. over their shoulders, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, and once he yeah. loved them, you know, then the word spread. But, of course, with COVID, they're now 
back to doing the um, mail order retail as well, although the restaurants will start opening up again, I guess. You know, John, John's principal business yeah. is lamb, but he, but he, he also butchers beef in the, same, in the small, same facility. Yeah, he's a small slaughtery, whatever, processing oh, place they call it. You're looking for a small there. beef processing plant in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. We'll introduce you to John, yeah. John and Suki Jamis. I would... <laughs> I would love the introduction. I think processing is one of the biggest bottlenecks and one of the biggest vulnerabilities, as we saw with the big plants shutting down. There's not enough small and mid-scale infrastructure, which we saw how vulnerable the meat system was with all the, the shortages and shutdowns over the past couple of months. So well, ser seriously, if, you, if you're interested in, in making that connection... Uh, 100%, yes. Send, send us an email specifically on that subject, and we'll... we'll 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 forward it on to John and Suki Jamison of Jamison Farm, and put them in touch with you. Yeah. Now, Dan, how long has your operation been running? We started in October of 2013, um, and we started very small. We bought one beef. We've never taken on investment, so we bought one beef and we sold it. And then we bought two beef, and then we sold them. Oh we wow. Three beef. Um, and so, yeah, we've been around since October of, of 2013. How, and, I mean, how was it like a, a, a ditch that was empty and you identified it and moved in, or how did that come about? Yeah, so I spent some time. I ran a butcher shop for about a year, and I was, okay. I was butchering there, and I couldn't easily find cuts of beef. I could find whole animals and I can work with whole animals and in a butcher shop that works. But then when Christmas would come around and everybody wants prime rib and I yeah. in order to work with small farms, I'd have to, you know, I'd either have to buy from somebody else who was selling anonymous meat, which wasn't the spirit of the, of the butcher shop or I'd not just have to tell a lot of people they couldn't have meat. And so it became very clear that, you, know, you can't ask everybody to change everything about how they work at once, and there are some amazing things about the commodity system. However, it's done about in a way that just totally doesn't care about the people and animals that feed us. And so that's where it sort of came to is like, hey, like, what if there was a way to connect small farms by aggregating and being able to sell to a butcher shop something like, you know, enough ribs with the name of the farm in every rib for Christmas to be able to actually have that butcher shop just sell what people are coming to them looking for and then find homes for all the ground beef and the meatballs and the chucks somewhere else. Um, and the reason it's just not done is beef are very big animals. <laughs> and it's, uh, I think ground beef is has to be one of the most competitive, dangerous, and expensive products to make on the market for, for what it is. It's just it's a deeply competitive product. Um, so that's why we make meatballs and, and beef and mushroom sliders because – there's no commodity market on meatballs. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Jamisons, even, even though they have a longstanding established market, um, I mean, Suki makes um, meat pies, lamb, meat pies and sausages and so forth and so on because yeah, you have that's to. So smart. I mean, yeah, so. Yeah. And, um, but now the farmers, I guess, would love having, first of all, the guarantee of placement. And um, secondly, not have to to do the work marketing work themselves, which is a full time job. Um, now, how yeah, about I think, 
I was going to say, how um, how are your customers? Uh, how are they receptive to it? Like, for example, um, uh, the restaurants. Um, I'm, I'm thinking. I mentioned to uh, um, Zora is is your partner. Anyhow, yeah. that uh, that there's such a difference in quality because I've judged um, grass-fed beef contests. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can pick out the winners uh, if you have 40 different growers and you sample the same cut from each of these. They're all grass-fed. Uh, you can tell there are two winners and the rest of them you might as well get rid of in taste. Yeah, I, I do say there's a ter- ter- we like to say there's a terroir to beef as well, just like there is to wine, right? There's a little bit of farm-to-farm variation. Um, and and so, like, that, that's sort of one of the exciting things about beef, too. Right? You can consider farms as, I wouldn't say, like, vintages, but maybe you could. Um, and so there, there will be different depending on the field and the season uh, and what grasses they grow. Uh, different well, how can products. you guarantee a certain kind of taste or quality when you're selling it to a restaurant? Yeah, and so, but that that differentiation is mild. Um, what we are able to guarantee is sort of the the quality of like very particular about how the animals are raised and the carcass size, and then we leave that to the farmers. So basically, say we're looking for animals that can be finished. You know, our spec is we say we want a 750 to 850 okay. pound carcass that's raised in this way. Um, and so, a natural part of our system is that terroir, is that little bit of difference that will come from animal to animal, that little bit of flavor. Um, and so I would say we're not 100%. You know, the only way you can get an animal that looks exactly consistent is to have, right, an animal fed the exact same diet with the exact same genetics yeah. and with the exact same amount of motion. Um, but by, by having our, our, you know, working very hard with our producers to have, like, the rearing constraints and we allow for a little bit of variation is, is how we do that. Um and, and, yeah, I think there just is a little bit of variation in small farm well, agriculture. Is it, is it a hard sell is basically what I'm saying. The the bigger sell more, it's not a hard sell um, in terms of as long as we get the butchery and the sizing similar. So that's why it's really important for us to have the carcass constraint where we say, you know, 750 to 850 so that uh-huh. the muscle structure will look similar. Um, and that's because a restaurant doesn't want to have, to you know, if their cook is trying to, you know, someone's on the grill line and they get a steak, you know, they're in the same size steak, but one's the size of your hand and one's the size of just your right, palm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are going to cook at different times and they don't want to have yeah, their rely on, on that type of knowledge. Um, well, so, yeah, and there's so many things to work out. I imagine that this is really a work in progress. We, we thought that the quality was exceptionally high in what we tried, and we also learned something new, discovered a, a new cut. They keep renaming parts of the animals. <laughs> so, so we now know what a um, Denver steak is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's one of the, my favorite cuts. It's from the Chuck, and most people don't Yeah, no, don't I don't. I, I had to look it up before, <laughs> and I've been in, this, <laughs> in the industry my whole life. So, But listen, yeah. I wish you the best of luck, because I think that you're doing – a lot of good on on both ends there, and and I hope you have success and and make a good living as well. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to to come and speak to y'all today. 
And for anybody who wants to find out more about us, uh, happyvalleymeat.com. You can come. That's what I was just going to ask you. Is it Happy Valley Meat, singular or plural? Singular, Happy Valley Meat, M-E-A-T. Meat, okay, I'm going to make a note on that because I had it as meat. Okay, happyvalleymeat.com, got it. All right, Dan Honig, keep up the good work and much success to you. Thanks so much, and I, I've, I've been, I'm really happy that you guys reached out. I've been listening. You've had so many great guests. And funny enough, some of my friends have been on your show, like Ori and Ethan from Burlap. Oh, God, I love Ori. So. <laughs> I love him. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm so happy to have found you guys, and or for you guys to have found us and for us to now know you. So yeah, I don't even remember how. But <laughs> okay, Dan Honig. Well, I guess that wraps up another program. It does. <laughs> We work our way through yeah. some time and not. <laughs> and we'll be here same time, same place next week. So we hope you'll join us then. And until then, bye-bye.